Hi, I'm Mark Graben. I am the VP of Improvement Services at Kinexus. I want to welcome you to our webinar. It's our first ever uh, broadcast on uh, this Blab.im platform. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Greg Jacobson. He's co-founder and CEO of Kinexus. And we've got a lot of questions left over from part one of the Ask Us Anything webinar that we did recently. There have been more questions submitted in the meantime. And so we're happy to continue um, answering these great questions. We'll do so, continue to do so through uh, blog posts, podcasts, possibly more webinars on this platform or through other technologies. Today, it's a bit of an experiment. It's our first time using this platform, but it's a small test of change. So I think we're all, uh, we're just willing to see how it goes. We hope it's helpful for everybody. Um, if you are logged in, um, through your Twitter account. Um, you can comment in the right sidebar. We'd love for you to tweet about the broadcast. Um, you can click on, if you see on uh, any of our windows here, a set of uh, yellow hands. I'm going to click on Greg right now. It says to give him props. Kind of a fun thing to do, I guess, if either of us say something that you think is on point or interesting, um, you can do that while we're chatting. So before we jump into questions, Greg, do you have any just kind of uh, hellos and welcomes you'd like to say? No, I'm really happy to be here, and hopefully everyone had a really relaxing and had some time off for their Thanksgiving break, and super excited. I, we're, um, um, I don't know if amazed is the right word, but just really excited about the number and the volume of questions, and we're re really going to you know keep trying to answer them completely versus cursory, so um, make sure that the, kind of at least our thoughts about the, the questions are, are out there. So. Yeah. All right, well, great. We're thankful uh, for all the questions that came in. So here is our first question, and it should appear on screen. Um, how do we build momentum when just starting off with continuous improvement? What can we do? What do we need to do to engage employees and capture um, their ideas to, to support and encourage their improvement ideas? Greg, your thoughts? Yeah, and I think this is a great example of making sure you start small. And I think Starting small can, can be as few as just a couple people. <clears throat> so it'll be a lot easier to, um, instead of trying to avoid the ocean, just to, to find a small group of people that work together, whether it's you know, 3, 5, 10, 15, even 50 people, and get them moving forward in the right direction and then kind of build and iterate on them. So I think it's going to be much easier to start momentum with a really small group of people. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, Bill, you, you raise a great point about, you know, trying to build some momentum by actually helping take action. So I've seen a lot of organizations that have had efforts to collect employee ideas, but then those ideas kind of go into a black hole, whether that's a suggestion box or some sort of electronic black hole type system. It's really important, you know, we see with our Kinexus customers to follow up very quickly on those ideas that come in because, you know, if employees are a little unsure about how this is going to work, they test the system their manager, their team, the system has to respond positively and, and help move things forward. Otherwise, they're just going to say, well, that was a waste and not participate again. As a, a side effect of it being a small group um, is that you really have the ability not only to, one, respond to those ideas quickly, like Mark mentioned, but also to coach those ideas. So you can immediately um, – iterate and and work to implement on the ideas that come through that are like oh well we should build a new parking garage we love that parking garage example you know instead of instead of letting that sit and fester for for 30 60 days and that we all know is not the type of 
um, change that we're looking for. What we're really looking for is well, what was the underlying problem that led you to put that in? So I think uh, it, it helps it make it a much more manageable process for a CI coach as well to, to get involved and make sure the first couple of steps don't have any, any trips, you know, if you will. And I think I, I'll just add one other point to the part of the question about getting started and engaging people. Even if you're using an electronic system like Kinexus, when I've worked with our customers, we really emphasize the need for managers to go get out of their office and go and talk to people face-to-face, one-on-one in team huddles, help look for problems, look for situations when people maybe seem uh, frustrated or struggling, and use those moments to capture ideas and as quickly as possible get them captured in Kinexus or captured in whatever method they're using to track those ideas. It can't be um, all just kind of distant communication through uh, a system or through cards on a, on a bulletin board. That, that personal interaction is really critical. And you reminded me when you said the manager getting out of the office, I think it's going to be key when, you know, as a CI coach, you've identified that small, we'll just say 20 people group that you're going to work with, is, is to really have alignment with the manager of that group. Because you as an outsider to that group is are going to really struggle if the, if the manager of those people isn't completely on board. So it's almost like you want to be coaching the manager to facilitate the process versus trying to, actually manage the process yourself. Yeah. So that's a good transition into the next question that asks, you know, if you want to gauge how supportive or mature is the culture for continuous improvement in any organization, what signs do you look for? What questions do you ask? I think one of those signs is seeing the amount of effort and energy that managers are putting into that discussion. And it's not that the managers are solving all of the problems, but it's that managers are engaging and collaborating and coaching and working with people. I think that that sheer amount of effort, if it's the right kind of effort, um, that, that effort's directly proportional to the success people see with improvement. And so there's almost like this, there's kind of soft and hard numbers, if you will, or, or soft characteristics and hard. I mean, the soft things would be, you know, well, how much time is a manager or the leader spending on CI? Because whatever they're spending and whatever they're focusing on, you know, the frontline folks are going to find important and focus on. Um, then there's also going to be hard numbers. Well, how many improvements have you implemented um, in a period of time? How many um, improvements have led to a change? What has the impact of those things been? And I think kind of finding a balance between the, the hard and the soft characteristics of what's going to define a culture uh, is is going to be a real good indicators. Um, and, and as I was saying this, it also popped into my mind that you know, if, if you just walk into an organization and you've heard that organization apparently is you know doing a lot of great work, and, and you're hearing that they have a good culture, you're just stopping someone in the halls and asking them what, what does improvement look like in your workplace and. How are you engaged in, in the improvement process? Or how do you, how, what would you do if you found something that could be better? And, and they have a really clear, concise, one-sentence, no wishy-washy answer, then you obviously know that something's being communicated really, really well, and they're doing great work. Yeah, I, I, to that point, I like to ask people, you know, what, what happens when you see a problem in the workplace or you have an idea for improvement, what do you do? And sometimes there's just kind of a shrug, like, well, you, and you can just tell that's not 
part of any of the workplace discussions. Um, sometimes people will say, well, I send an email to my manager. Well, there's another one of those black holes that we see where um, you know, the manager has limited bandwidth. They can't solve everything. That's right. We see in a more mature culture of continuous improvement, we see a higher percentage of time when managers are kind of delegating back to their staff, but not in a totally hands-off way. I think part of the maturity of a culture of continuous improvement has managers saying, you know, you're empowered, but I'm going to help you. I'm not going to do it all for you. I'm not just dumping this on you. There's that middle ground. And you mentioned it, Greg, and I'll, I'll reiterate. I think one of the signs of maturity is that percentage of ideas that get implemented. Because we've seen when people are moving off of a legacy suggestion box system, paper or electronic suggestion boxes, the percentage of ideas being implemented is usually 1% or 2%. And that's really discouraging and demoralizing to people. In an effective Kaizen process, you tend to see getting closer to 90% of ideas being implemented. And, and Greg, maybe I'll bounce it back to you. We've got some data from our customers um, that's that's really uh, impressive in terms of that percentage, right? And so I think when people initially hear, um, oh, for example, across all of the Kinex customers, I think the last tally we do it monthly was 75% of all improvements resulted in the change. That means we have some organizations that are upwards of 90 we have other organizations that are, you know, in the 50, 60% um, range. But what I hope isn't being communicated is that 75% of, <clears throat> of all ideas or opportunities that were put in initially were amazing and great. And that's that's 100% not the take-home message here because probably 1% to 2% of them that get put in the system in their that first version get implemented at the end of the day in that version. The vast majority start through a process of, um, you know, whether it's a catch-ball process, whether it's um, just simply going to the author and, and doing some root cause and, and really trying to peel back the layers of the onion to see what things are at. But that's the way organizations get to those high percentages, not because they're waiting to, to get the initial 75% um, from that initial mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right, Greg. You have to be careful. I think part of that maturity is a mature organization sets the expectation that we're going to sometimes try ideas that don't work out as we expected and that that's not a failure. That's not anything to be ashamed of or to punish people for. Um, it's, it's really part of that plan, do, study, adjust mindset. Of, you know, We do a small test of change because that minimizes some of the risk. We didn't anticipate something, our idea doesn't work, our idea has side effects. Okay, that's great. We don't want to set the expectation of, you know, you better have 90% awesome ideas <laughs> as they're coming into the hopper. Uh, leaders have to help coach and work people toward good ideas. So um, let me move along to our next question. Um, how can you get problems resolved and motivate employees with low morale? Let me, let me jump in on, on that one first here. So I, I think I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, and I think there's a question behind the question of why is morale low? I've been in organizations where part of the reason morale is low is people say, nobody ever listens to my ideas. People want to contribute uh, to improving the workplace. They want um, to have a voice. And a lot of them have just sort of given up. They've been discouraged because they they thought it just wasn't worth their effort in the past. So 
I've seen in a lot of cases um, where you managers have to, you know, maybe acknowledge the past and move forward and say, okay, we are going through this new process. We are going to be listening to your ideas. We are going to be helping make improvement happen. Some people will say, okay, hooray, finally. And there'll be, you know, kind of an instant morale boost and people will start participating. Some are going to shrug their shoulders and say, okay, whatever, and maybe not participate. But, you know, I think sometimes leaders have to acknowledge, here's some of the problems of the past. Let's, let's move forward in a different way. And I think that if you're coming into a place or you're working at a place that has a low morale, you probably do have a larger handicap for doing this type of work. And it's going to take likely longer than if you started doing this type of work at a place that didn't have a low morale to begin with because you're having to kind of compensate for kind of past mistakes. And um, it's, it's also one of these, it's a good example to show that you don't just implement um, and uh, it's a project that you, oh, we did continuous improvement last year. This is, you know, I love the concept of it's practicing lean or practicing continuous improvement. It's a lifestyle change. It's something you're going to do day in and day out. And there's going to be small little wins. And um, it's ultimately how you're going to kind of move the mind share in the hearts of, of uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at a time. It's going to take a ton of small little steps along that path. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to start somewhere. And sometimes that starting somewhere is with those people that are most willing to step forward and say, okay, great. You are listening to me now. Thank you. I'm going to participate and, and move this forward. You won't get everyone participating at first, and I, and I think that's okay. You know, I'm not a big proponent of setting a target or a quota or forcing everyone must submit two ideas because if you've got those people that are shrugging their shoulders or crossing their arms, and if they're not into it yet, I think you need to work with the people who do choose to participate. When the others see positive things happening, that will get others involved and you start seeing the needle move on morale measures. And I've seen this in organizations, the survey scores start increasing. I think the best measure of morale is just the number of ideas coming in and the number of ideas being implemented. If that's headed in the right direction or if that's, if that's fallen off, that tells you a lot. Um, I think kind of a real time measure about morale and the, the, the tone in the workplace. Two things come to mind as we were talking, Mark. One was, to me, the best measure of morale that I've seen was I was talking with a colleague, and she was asking me, and so I'm still a practicing ER doctor. I practice a couple shifts a month. She said, so what is this company that you work on full-time, and you come into the emergency department on weekends? And and so I started explaining to her. I was like, oh, well, you know, the company's Kinexus. It's revolved around the concept of Kaizen and yada, yada. And all of a sudden – her face just completely lit up and said, oh, my gosh, you're working on on those principles? And I was like, yeah, no, tell, tell me why you're so excited. And she said, oh, well, you know, a, a place where I did my residency, um, um, Beaumont Hospital, um, healthcare, I might be, is it healthcare hospital? I'm not quite sure. Um, she said, um, they, they, that's what we did. It was amazing. And it wasn't just lip service to it. We would do all sorts of, um, Kaizen events or Gemba walks or, or just a daily improvement. And it really, really uh, affected not only the, 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 the patient work that they were doing, but you could tell um, her, her whole physical body just changed 
um, and, and excitement. And so I think that's a, a real good indicator on, on whether or not you have low morale or, or, um, or high morale in an organization that isn't necessarily completely data-driven. That's kind of the soft indicator, if you will. And then the, the second thing I was thinking of is, you know, we recently heard Ethan Burris from, from UT present some, I think, some really compelling data that I hadn't really heard before, which was if you ask for engagement, if you ask for ideas, you ask for problems, and then you don't respond, the morale actually drops and becomes worse than if you were to not ask at all. And I think that's a really great home, great take-home message in general that when you guys are ready to, to embark on this, you and I don't think it means that you need to have you know this you know, five-year plan to be ready for this. I think it can be a, a plan that's made in, in a day or two at a couple meetings. But it, it, you need to have a plan that someone's going to respond to these, someone's going to go back to the author in good clarification on them, and they're going to do it in a quick way because you can actually cause more unintentional harm by by making your first step but then missing up your second and your third step yeah and i think you know it goes back to the old idea don't over promise and under deliver and that's where i think when we come back to the question about how do we get started with kaizen and continuous improvement starting small i think often means just a department or a couple of departments we're not asking we don't I wouldn't recommend at the start a CEO give a big speech and tell everybody in the organization, hey, we're all starting continuous improvement tomorrow. I've just seen that big bang approach uh, just crash and burn because the, the effort is spread too thin for leaders or coaches to actually actively participate. So I think, you know, we've seen back. Uh, let me give a plug for our next webinar on um, December 10th. Um, when people can find out kinexus.com slash webinars. We've got two people from Mary Greeley Medical Center in Iowa. They've been a customer of ours for a couple of years. And they have a really great story about starting their daily continuous improvement process in a couple of departments, really letting that take hold and get a really good solid start before they moved on to other departments to help spread that methodology um, because, you know, it requires leadership and, you know, you can't just drop software on people and say, here, start using it. You know, and if they've got really one internal PI, continuous improvement coach, they had to make sure that Ron was actually able to really coach the people who were getting started. So that meant a pretty methodical approach, but they've really made great progress in the past year getting that all throughout the organization. I think it's also a great, you know, it's a good good time to mention we, we hear oftentimes, oh, Kinexus, we're, we're not ready for that yet. And then so they go off and they create an Excel, you know, SharePoint, shared drive system. And, and that administrative burden of that system and the inefficiency of that system kind of out of the starting gates. Um, it's almost like, well, we're going to have you run a marathon, but we're going to strap two 10-pound weights on each of your legs. And good luck with that. So I think it's a great example of how a little bit of um, structure and planning to make sure that you're setting up a process that's going to make sure your second, your third, and your fourth steps are going to be, um, well, not effortless, but they're, you're not going to make a, a misstep in that process. And it's a great, um, we've seen that time and time again, where just a little bit of planning, utilizing Kinexus in the right way can make that, that first part of your journey much, much easier. Yeah. 
Okay, well, thanks, Greg. And I've posted down in the uh, on the right sidebar chat box a link to our webinars page if you want to sign up for that webinar on December 10th. That's going to be a little bit more traditional go-to-webinar format. So we changed directions a little bit. Um, we had a couple of questions about uh, virtual teams. Um, uh, Kinexus, we are in a lot of ways, many of us a virtual team. Greg and I are sitting in different cities. Um, so the question came in here, I want to know how you would approach work from home employees with huddles. We've tried many forms of technology uh, for conference calls or video chat for daily huddles, uh, but it's it's not the same. And um, where's the rest of the question? And that uh, really creates an excuse or a barrier for the other associates. So Greg is the CEO of uh, a company that's spread out across many cities. What are your thoughts yeah, on that? So I so Mark's right. We have a we have a primary office in Dallas, a primary office in Austin, and but then we have uh, two or three other folks that are are not at those primary offices. So we do have kind of a blended um, a team, um, just distributed team, and we we use a lot of video conferencing technologies. We use um, um, Google Chat, we um, Google Chat, Google Hangout, Go to Meeting. Um, and, and those seem to work fairly, fairly seamlessly with us. Certainly sometimes we're cussing one of those pieces of technology because the audio isn't working or something, but, but that seems to work really well. The, and, and we're with Kinexus, you know, now that we have 2.0 up and going, we they have this new energy and at Kinexus to use Kinexus. Um, and so that's worked fairly seamlessly when everyone has their, Kinexus boards up, and when we're going through our opportunity, our internal opportunities for improvement, um, that seems to work. And, and we've heard from many other, uh, Middlesex is one of our um, customers that does this extremely successfully. They have six different um, rehabilitation departments that have a daily huddle at 9 a.m., and each huddle each day is actually running a, a different board from each of those. So every six to seventh day, they're back on the fire board. And that seems to work. So I think it's a matter of uh, simply kind of recognizing that the, there's going to be a trade-off of people not being in the room, but there's also a trade-off between people um, not being a part of the conversation at all or traffic or, you know, different, you know, family situations of why they can't be in the same room. So I think 100% this can, this can be done. I think probably combining something like Kinexus with video conferencing is probably your your sweet spot in making all this work, but I don't see that there being any technical reason that if people want to do continuous improvement, they couldn't do it remotely. Yeah, and, and I think it, it, there's also the point of, you know, do they want to do the huddle? So I'll, I'll address this in a slightly, slightly different way. The question of the difficulty about virtual huddles is a very common, familiar question about in-person team huddles in a department, in a pharmacy, in a manufacturing line. I've been in manufacturing settings where the team huddle was very much a mandatory thing. They shut down production. Everybody, the manager, you know, you, you have to come. In healthcare, it's more complicated in a lot of settings where um, you can't completely stop patient care in a lot of settings. You can't necessarily pull everybody away for the huddle, but you, you pull in as many people as you can. Um, having it at a regular time allows people to maybe try to plan their routines so that they can come to the huddle. And, and I think th 
the, the other question I would ask if people are not attending, I would ask why. Is there a legitimate reason, such as I'm always having to take patients down to radiology at that time? Well, okay, fair enough. Maybe we should change the time of the huddle. Or sometimes, and I think people maybe won't always be as upfront about this, they'll say there's basically no value to the huddle. It's not worth my time. And so I think as leaders, we need to look at the agenda, the structure, the timing of the huddle, and make sure um, that, it, that it's providing some benefit to everybody there. If there's benefit, they'll, they'll find a way to participate. I think there's also considering 24-hour cycle locations, for example, an emergency department, a night shift worker is simply not going to be very interested in joining a 9 a.m. huddle when they got off at 5 a.m. that morning. So I think that's also a place where uh, technology like Hynexus can really help create a virtual huddle experience. I think one of the other things also that, that we're working through internally is um, trying to maximize time because a lot of communication does simply go on within Kinexus. There's other areas of where the communication would be really good for us all to have some mind share around. So what we've done internally is just created a category called review in, in weekly meeting. And so it just pre-populates a list. We just quickly look to say, okay, what, which improvements or projects were just getting bogged down in comments and we just needed to have kind of mind share open, you know, discussion. And, um, and so we kind of figured out a nice balance there. So. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think there's, there's um, one other point I was going to make, you know, we talk about huddles. That's a form of what people call synchronous communication. What we're doing right now is synchronous communication uh, for people who could not attend this live. This session is being recorded. They're going to come and view it at some other point. That's a form of asynchronous communication. So, you know, emails uh, are asynchronous communication. There's a time and a place for that. Um, logging notes from a huddle into Kinexus helps create a form of asynchronous communication that, that's logged and kept handy for people in a way. Sometimes that's more effective uh, than, than email. So it's really interesting to see how our customers combine their live in-person huddles with the asynchronous communication and activity that happens through web-based technologies. It's a, it's a really interesting blend. And the, I think the balance is a little different for different types of organizations. There's a, a related question, Greg. Um, do you have any other top tips for engaging a virtual globally dispersed leadership team to adopt lean and model it in their daily work? Either trying to think about how, how we operate is Kinexus or any other examples? I, I really don't see a difference truly between whether it's globally dispersed or not, because to me, I think you're still going to, in the leadership behavior of commitment and resources and modeling is going to apply whether people are in the same room or not. The improvement process that we, we discussed, it being you know, simple, consistent, and disciplined is going to completely apply as well. So, I think that the uh, clear articulation of what's the why of the company and then recognizing that we're going to pr pr provide or produce our product the best when we have every single person thinking about how to do that versus a very small percentage of those people doing it. The exact you know, method and medium that that's communicated in, I think, uh, becomes a secondary issue. 
Uh, I'm going to move on to uh, another question. This was directed um, to you as a, a physician, Greg. Uh, what's one example from your experience where applying lean resulted in direct prevention of patient death? Yeah, this is one that, that you actually forwarded to me yesterday, um, recognizing I would need some thought on it because it's, it's a really difficult question. And I was trying to think of why is it a difficult question? Because it's a difficult question because we don't, uh, a, a, a patient death is a, um, is an, is an action that doesn't occur, you know, all the time, right? It, a patient death is the, is the outlier of an action. And so to then try to think of a situation that if, if it was a preventing of a patient death, then it meant that some sort of error occurred or something better could have happened, right? And so you're then looking at an even smaller subset. So, um, so then, then I, then I have kind of two, flavors of an answer on this. One is um, the opposite. There, there haven't been many scenarios that I've been involved with where an error or potentially a possible error occurred that may have led to harm or death where we didn't step back and, and identify some process that could have been better in doing that. So by, I guess, inductive reasoning, you would then conclude that if you did an action that focused on processes and improving processes, it could have led to that action not happening. And so I think the, the inverse, I think, of that question is a much easier question to answer. And the, then the, the second part of that is there's not, there's no you know, randomized control double-blinded placebo-controlled placebo trials talking about using a parachute when you jump out of a plane. But, you know, I think we all would accept the, the fact that if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, your chance of survival is less than doing it with a parachute. And so I think it's one of those, those um, questions that just has face validity, that if you have a, a tight, you know, business management philosophy that includes respect for people, that includes continuous improvement, that includes things like articulating strategic, um, you know, um, initiatives and direction. That you're going to have a um, a rowboat. You're going to have a ship that is in much better sync than if you're just going to kind of haphazardly, you know, walk around with a, a whip and just saying, "Oh, this is bad. This is bad. Oh, this week we're going to work on this, and next week we're going to work on that." So, yeah. Well, and I'm you know I'm always impressed. I mean, you know, as you know, I, I see organizations that help focus their lean efforts on, I think, you know, the critically important issues of patient safety, quality and clinical outcomes, patient satisfaction, employee safety. Um, you know, th those, those are such important issues. Sometimes I think there's a, a mistaken idea that lean is only a, focused on efficiency or cost or productivity. When, you know, you look at the roots of the Toyota production system, safety and quality are really, you know, primary overarching goals. It's part of the culture. It's not just a measure. It's really a consistent emphasis. We can't just give it lip service. Um, so when I see people applying lean to, to situations where it's hard to say when it directly prevented a death, but I've seen people in uh, trauma surgery teams or, you know, trauma teams in the ER looking at their workflows, creating standardized work. So when a patient comes in, that everyone who gathers 
around the table has specific roles and expectations, which nurses are supposed to do which things. And that, that, that minimizes some of the chaos and what I'm only imagining is an incredibly chaotic situation. You'd say every patient is unique. Okay, fair enough. But when, when people use lean to create some structure that helps minimize delays, minimize miscommunications that could lead to a death. I mean, I think that's the most powerful application of lean. Right, right. And, and to, to try to identify the event in which you prevented becomes a, a, almost an impossible action versus the inverse of that, which is, okay, well, these were events that occur that we can study. And could we have probably prevented these had we have been practicing lean for the last 10 years? Yeah, I, I, would, I would have a hard time concluding that you couldn't have prevented that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you see organizations say they're able to do the math on, let's say, certain types of hospital-acquired infections. They, they use lean, they put some new practices in place, they see a measurable reduction in the infection rates. Right. You can't prove definitively that that was all due to lean. Right. But you can see, you know, usually very st statistically significant reductions. And then they can also measure not just the infection rates, but the death rates from those infections and say, well, normally the death rate is X percent. Either that rate was the same, but we have fewer infections or due to whatever improvements, hopefully the, uh, the death rate was reduced. I mean, you know, there, there are measurable ways you can look, but I think part of the challenge in healthcare is that there's usually tons of different initiatives happening at once. It's hard. We see our customers trying to quantify the impact of individual improvements. Either, like Greg said, there's no, there's usually not the luxury of saying, well, this month we made this change. There's so many things happening. You can't uh, definitively prove, prove cause and effect. Okay, um, let's move on to uh, another question here. It says, I've got five minutes of my healthcare senior management team's time to convince them to seriously investigate lean concepts. What are the three or four most important concepts I want them to take away? So I'll be a pest and ask, why are they only giving you five minutes? But okay, it's an elevator speech. We've, we've got limited time. Greg, let me bounce this to you because you got a lot better, I know, in your history of explaining at least Kaizen and continuous improvement in kind of incrementally faster, more efficient ways. Can you maybe maybe touch on some of that history that you have? Sure. I think the, the key word in this whole question is senior management time. Mm -hmm. um, because I would do this differently if we were talking to the front line. But the yeah. senior management time, I think the, the question I would probably pose and the opportunity I would probably um, focus on is figuring out what do your seniors care the most, your senior management team, not your seniors, um, what does your senior management team care the most about right now? There's going to be something that is um, consuming their their day-to-day, -day, whether it was a uh, significant event that occurred, whether it's a um, joint commission audit, whether it's reducing their length of stay, there's going to be some event or some principle that they're focused on and then couching it in a way that has to do with that. And unfortunately or fortunately, it might end up starting off looking kind of like a top-down project. 
But I think pretty quickly you can then say, hey, you know, we're going to focus on, let's just take one to stay. We're going to focus on one to stay, and we're going to do that by attacking this problem in a couple of different areas, right? We're going to do, you know, two projects that have been identified for, for length to stay, but then what we're actually going to do is instead of just having 20 people work on this problem, we're going to actually get 250 people to work on this problem to identify things that those 20 people don't know and don't see and don't have the expertise to do. So I don't even think that you have to use the word lean at all. I think you can just literally talk in the language that your senior senior management um, knows and focus on that and just use the, use a word like continuous improvement. Use a word like, you know, staff engagement. Everyone knows that. Three to six months down the line, once they start seeing, oh, wow, there's some real benefit and, and real impact to, to, you know, what – Sally's crazy concept was, Sally, can you tell us more about what you're doing? Then she can go in and start, you know, start peeling back the, the layers on, oh, okay, well, actually, you know, this is, this is the, the, the principles that we were applying here. This is why we did things in this way here and, and start really kind of introducing lead. I think if you open, though, with a bunch of um, concepts and, and um, you know, Japanese words, and things that are confusing, they're immediately going to shut you off and, sure. and uh, be daydreaming about something else. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think, I think, I think yeah. you have to make the connection that lean is about solving problems that matter for the organization. Um, what are the senior executives interested in improving? Hopefully, safety, quality, patient waiting times, patient satisfaction, the bottom line of the organization. Those are all important factors and something that needs to be kept in balance. So I would emphasize, you know, lean is not just a tool set for the frontline staff to use. That lean is also um, something that senior leaders need to learn about and pay attention to, um, trying to incorporate lean thinking into their management processes. And we see um, ThetaCare, Virginia Mason, organizations like that, from, you know, the CEO level on down, are practicing lean thinking in their daily work. They're using you know, methods like strategy deployment to make sure that uh, improvement efforts just aren't you know, scattered random activity, that they are you know, tied to the goals and measures of the organization. Um, so I think those are some things that matter, but uh, maybe you know, changing direction from the original question a little bit, you know, Greg, in, in your work, because I think we do also have to introduce lean to busy frontline staff members. You were doing that a lot with residents and in ER docs, if you can just tell a little bit about that progression of how you get better at that over time. Yeah, I think so it's a good story to share. In 2005, I was the beginning of when I was starting to think about how do you educate residents in, in these principles. And, and I thought I did a remarkable job by taking Mazaki MI's book Kaizen and distilling it down to a two hour lecture that I gave one hour and then one hour. And as time went on, by the, the third batch of residents, the third year that I was doing Kaizen teaching, I'd literally gotten it down to a 15 minute primer. And I literally just focused on five principles that I wanted them to take away. And it's been since 2008, so I don't remember the exact five that I did, but I can tell you. You boiled it down. Yeah. The two, two that I think resonate the most with frontline people are low cost, low risk, 
Mm -hmm. the, the ideas and observations you're having have to be low cost, low risk. And two, teaching people what a non-value added step is. And, and I know a lot about healthcare and I know less about other other industries, although what I'm finding out is, is other industries are extremely similar with regard to, to non-value added steps. So just teaching someone by, through an example, you know, the example that I gave, because um, being an ER doctor, trauma situation, you um, a patient needs a, a tube put in their lung to re-expand it. You go to the cabinet that should have the tube in there. You open it. It's not in there. All of a sudden, someone has to run to central supply, which is a hallway down, grab the right tube coming back. That whole process of that tube not being in the cabinet in the trauma bay to recognizing that, to having someone run down to get it to bring it back, all of that was non-value added, right? And as soon as you explain that, everyone just nodded and like, oh, yeah, my day is filled with non-value added work. I'm happy to start identifying non-value added work. And so when I just gave them, and I'm just, as I'm talking through this, I'm remembering the third principle, um, because really a lot of the things you're trying to do at the beginning from a frontline staff is help them identify, I would focus on them answering the question, when you're frustrated at work, instead of kind of lashing out, whether that's at a coworker or whether that's at a patient or, or whatnot, stop and just think for a second. Just take 15 seconds and go, is there a process issue underlying why I'm frustrated? And can I turn that, can I turn this frustration, which is something negative, into something positive by coming up with an idea for an opportunity for improvement? Now, that idea, it may not be you have a solution. It might just be as simple as identifying what the problem was and then it'll get thrown into a daily huddle or to a team or you can collaborate directly with your supervisor on coming up with solutions. But um, I, I think really kind of keeping it simple and identifying just one or two points, I think trying to get people interested in this type of stuff with an eight-hour lecture series is going to be absolutely mind-numbing and be less successful. Yeah, and I think in general, you know, working with frontline staff, you can get them engaged in improvement without teaching them all lean concepts. You can start at the very basic level of point out the things that frustrate you, the things that get in the way of you during your work, the things that lead to not the ideal patient experience or something that affects our customers. That first level of ideas um, is going to be really helpful. Then you can start teaching people lean concepts, how to see the difference between being busy versus adding value. What is a workaround versus a root cause fix to a process? Um, you know, helping people understand that can lead to a second layer of ideas that they might not have um, initially brought forward. So I think, you know, this, you know, the, I think the beauty of, of Kaizen and continuous improvement, we don't need to put everybody through a belt program we don't need to put them through tons of training or certify anybody. We just really just get them participating. And we can add different lean concepts on top of that. As organizations are, let's say, progressing from daily continuous improvement to doing rapid improvement events, to doing bigger lean projects, I think it's best to bring uh, different methods in as needed uh, based on the problems we're solving as opposed to just trying to uh, teach a bunch of tools and some sort of preordained sequence. Okay, uh, next question. 
having a little trouble getting it to appear on screen because it's a long question and the, uh, the button has disappeared. So I'm gonna just read it. Um, our current metrics for continuous improvement include uh, the number of people using uh, PDSA, the number of problems identified, the number of improvements done, and the number of things not done, and the number of people coaching others in PDSA. So it's a two-part question. Uh, are there any other metrics that you recommend? Uh, because our Kinex's customers track um, those metrics. Um, are there any other metrics? And then should we have goals for those metrics? So Greg, maybe you want to talk about some of the other metrics you see people tracking. So what are... So we have in, in Kinexus, we easily show the number of uh, submitted improvements, the number of completed improvements, the number of uh, engagement numbers. So what what is our improvements per person per time? So an easy one to think about is just annualized. What's your number of improvements per person per time? What's your percent of engagement in the either in the, the actual improvements themselves or just logging into the system. We can show both of those. And then on the impact side. So um, by, and, and we, we do not only the submission side, which is, I'm just gonna talk about it as activity. Um, we also do on the impact side. So on the submission side, you can get those answers of this, how many have been submitted, how many have been completed. You can also figure out, well, by location, how many have they submitted? How many have they worked on? How many have they completed? What percent change has occurred um, in all the improvements that they have? And then you can also do that by a person. And I want to know how many improvements has Mark submitted versus that he's collaborated on versus that he has um, been a, uh, that he's assigned to other people. And, and, and then on the, on the impact side, you can see, okay, well, all right, well, how much money, time, satisfaction, safety improvements have occurred by a location and then by a person? And I think what all of this is really getting at is to try to have a good representation at an aggregate level of all the improvement going on. And uh, so, I mean, in, in looking at what they are tracking, I think, I think those are all very good good stats to have. I don't, I don't see any problem with these. Um, number of PDSs equals not, not number of problems solved and number. I mean, my, yeah. my only question is, is all of your PDA cycles should eventually be completed. <laughs> um, well, but I think, no, but, but breaking, I think depending on the terminology, you could say imp we implemented something or we didn't implement something. Okay. Right. Versus number of problems solved. Okay. So um, those are some of the, uh, the different things that we capture in Kinexus, I think they can be used in lots of different ways. Uh, we, we know that there are some best practices. For example, we know a best practice is making sure you respond to improvements within 24 to 48 hours. We know another best practice is make sure there's not one person that's responsible for all the improvements in a work area that, that needs to be distributed. We know that a best practice is having a high level of um, implement, implementation or change rate. So, as long as your metrics can answer, are you doing these best practices? And as long as I can answer, okay, well, what areas of my organization are doing good work and aren't doing good work, then you'll know how you can best coach and where your time should be spent at your organization. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I would I would emphasize also it's important to track these measures over time and to look for trends. So when you can see charts that show participation over time and you see you know, a really steady rate of improvement and then suddenly it just totally levels off. That's an opportunity for leaders or whoever's monitoring those metrics to go and ask why and, and say, well, something must have happened. Uh, what, what triggered uh, that drop off in participation and go um, use that as an opportunity to investigate, go to the department, um, ask questions, do what you can to coach people through the situation to get them back on track. Um, now, in the second part of the question about um, goals for the metrics, um, I think there, you know, there's, there's good guidelines. Like, you know, I would say to people, best practice, continuous improvement, Kaizen, is to implement something 90% of the time. I wouldn't make that a target. I wouldn't tell managers, you better implement 90% of your ideas or you're not going to get a bonus this year because that can drive dysfunctional behavior where people will just say, oh yeah, 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 we implemented something. So you, you, know, you don't want that sort of um, dysfunction that can come with a target. I've seen organizations, they'll set a goal and say, everybody must submit two ideas this year. And some people are participating naturally. And then you get to about this time of the year and people realize, oh, dang it, I haven't done my improvement ideas yet. And they start flooding the system just for the, the, the sake of hitting a goal or a quota. And so um, I think it's important for an organization to measure the participation rates. And if you've got 50% of your employees participating, to ask why are the other 50% not participating, talking to them, talking to their leaders. If you fix the underlying barriers that are preventing someone from wanting to step forward and participate, I think that's a better long-term fix than just setting a goal or a target. You can make the numbers look good in a goal or a target, but it might not really be meaningful improvement if you're kind of forcing people to participate. I think our lesson from Asaki Amai and Toyota and organizations that are great with continuous improvement is that it's voluntary. You're trying to create an environment where people want to participate. And I think that's what really makes it a sustainable continuous improvement initiative. And especially not having a target that every improvement must save X number of dollars. That's the surest way um, to kill an, uh, an improvement program, setting a target like that. So, I mean, I think that as I'm hearing you talk through it, Mark, it's almost, you use the example 50% participation rate. So is, is that good or not? I mean, that my first gut feeling would be like, okay, I get everything you said, Mark, but what is 50%? Is that good? I mean, I think 50% for healthcare is very good. And, and, and I think also the question really should be, well, what was your participation rate last month, last year? Was it 80%? Well, because maybe 50% isn't so good if it was 80%. But was it 10%? Well, then 50% is really great. So I, I love the concept of making sure you're trending these over time. And, and, I, and I think it's, it's not one of these things where – um, it, there are winners and there are losers, right? Yeah. And so literally our world could exist with every single organization doing this 100%, at 100% um, you know, efficiency, if you will, or participation or, or whatnot. So um, I do think it's actually a situation where, um, where we're probably learning a lot. Um, I know that we, we, we are now developing a, a very large database at Kinexus um, with you know, dozens and dozens of organizations and 
in different industries. Um, and so we'll be able to get benchmarking, but I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be very hesitant to say that. Well, so if you're at 50% and that's a good benchmark, are, are you done? Do you not want to get to other 50 I mean, you know, so like there is a little bit of um, a question, I think to, that needs to be answered on, well, what are you going to do with that information? Yeah. I mean, if, if, if I were, I mean, I think of my co-authors organization, Joe Schwartz, uh, my co-author at Healthcare Kaizen, they have, I, I think, you know, a world-class healthcare continuous improvement process and culture. Their participation rates have stalled out at roughly 40%, meaning in a given year, 40% of their employees actively participated. And it's not always the same 40%. And to their credit, they ask themselves, well, if our, our goal is everybody participating in improvement, we know everyone can do it. Everybody has ideas that can contribute. There's still that gap. And they ask themselves, what do we need to do as leaders to help that other 60% participate? I love the fact that they don't blame or label that 60% as, oh, well, those, those are the 60% who don't care. Well, of course, it's not that. Or those are the 60% who don't have creative ideas. I mean, I think... When we look at Kaizen, everybody has ideas about their own work. They see problems and things that can be fixed, and we have to tap into that. And you know, uh, you know wherever we are this year, as long as it's better than last year, that's that's continuous improvement of our continuous improvement program. And we can strive for next year and the year after to keep getting better at getting better, if you will. Um, so we've got uh, maybe about five more minutes. We have a couple other questions. Um, Here's, here's a question. Um, how do we help leaders transition to being a coach? This is something we've talked a lot about and we've done webinars you know, around Kaizen coaching. Um, my first thought on this is that at some point you need someone to coach the coaches. You know, Aunt Mary Greeley, who we mentioned earlier, that's, um, that's been Ron, their director of process improvement, um, who's been coaching individual managers and, and trying to help them build good habits a good coach will kind of pull you aside when you're doing some things that are maybe creating barriers to continuous improvement. I think, you know, everybody needs a coach or a, or a mentor, whatever you call it. And I think that's where you have to think about how you build those coaching capabilities in a workplace. I don't think there's any magic book or class that you can send people to that, oh, well, now suddenly I'm a coach. You know, it's something we get better at. And, um, you know, when you have someone coaching the coaches, you know, it's got to start with somebody who's qualified and capable of doing that coaching. Um, in an organization like Toyota, where there's a long history of this, you've probably got the luxury of everybody through the leadership chain being able to coach new people in the organization and coaching people who are probably already pretty good coaches at becoming better coaches, trying to start uh, from scratch in an organization where there hasn't been a tradition of coaching you know, that, that's a, a difficult thing to get started, but you have to start somewhere. Yeah, I, I think I just to add to what Mark is saying, I, I mean, it wouldn't be a proper webinar if I didn't mention the San Antonio Spurs. And so if you think about like great coaches, you know, Popovich is considered one of the greatest coaches of, of all professional sports. And um, I'm in the process of reading the you know, Leaders Eat Last and in order for a coach, for a leader to transition to being a coach, a leader has to feel safe, right? I mean, he talks about that, that sphere of safety. 
And one of the reasons why Popovich has been so successful is because um, he, he, he feels very safe at his job. I mean, I know there was the late 90s little, you know, couple-week period. But aside from that, he's felt very safe at his job on this tenure coach. And, and so it allows him to experiment. It allows him to do things that are against the norm. And he feels like he's not going to get um, a repercussion from doing that because he's doing it in the best interest of, of getting the team to win. And I think that t- ties, in, ties in really nicely to what, um, what Simon Sinek is talking about is that people have to feel safe at work. And when you go from being um, – when you're transitioning to ask someone to, to not do command and control and to start coaching, you're really asking that person to, to give up some of their control and to give up some of their um, um, ability to, you know, crack the whip, if you will. And that person is going to have to feel confident and they're going to have to feel secure in order to do that. And so I think that's going to be a, a real important component of getting people to change their mindset into becoming a coach. And, and I think when we're coaching people, um, you know, I think of managers that I've been shadowing and observing and trying to coach in the workplace. When I see them doing things that I think maybe, you know, need, need, correcting or, or, or they're doing things that shouldn't be done. I need to be careful as a coach to do that and bring that up in a way that's sort of, you know, private and respectful and not embarrassing them in front of their team. Or, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for the idea of, you know, praise publicly and criticize privately. There's something to be said for, you know, observing and coaching, um, you know, without interfering, without getting in the way and, and kind of, taking a note to, to pull that person aside for a, a private coaching and debrief session and say, well, hey, let's talk through what happened. Here, here's what I was seeing. See if the, the person you're coaching saw it the same way, if there was a behavior. Let's say if, if, that, if the person you were coaching was just being really dismissive and shooting down ideas in a huddle, saying, like, oh, that'll never work, and you know, kind of just dismissing an idea. Um, you, know, you need to bring that up and, and try to help people come around and, and, and see it in a way that's that's not threatening or not going to scare them off from being coached. You, you won't be welcome as a coach if you're, you know, we see football coaches on the sideline turning red in the face and chewing out their player in front of millions of people on TV. That's not the model I think that we want for continuous improvement coaching. So um, with that, we're almost to the top of the hour. So um, we'll go ahead and, and wrap up. We, we got through, uh, I think, a good number of questions here today. We still have a lot of questions that we are going to answer uh, in, in different formats. So we, we thank you for joining us here today. Our first experiment using the blab.im platform. Um, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can email me at mark at kinexus.com if you um, have pros and cons, things you liked or didn't like about the technology um, or, or the, the platform we're using here today. And finally, uh, I'll invite you to come to our website, go to kinexus.com slash webinars, and you can sign up for uh, the next webinar, Customers from Mary Greeley Medical Center are presenting on uh, December 10th. Um, Greg, do you have any uh, final words to add? No, please let us know what you thought of this. Thank you so much for joining us.